Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about a very important part of Chinese foreign policy as it relates to the millions of Chinese citizens who live overseas and increasingly the billions of dollars of Chinese investments overseas and how they protect them. As Chinese businesses have expanded across the world, so the Chi- so has the Chinese government's need to cope with a new map of global risks for its overseas investments. With over $100 billion invested overseas, plus $10 billion of new investment added every year, along with, again, hundreds of thousands of Chinese nationals abroad, China has a need to protect its people and interests internationally that are now greater than ever. Now, it wasn't that long ago when it was absolutely inconceivable that China would be able to rescue its citizens from places as far away as Libya or Sudan. I mean, I remember 15, 20 years ago, you know, the the Chinese army and the Chinese navy were really, you know, just third world kind of jokes. Well, that's not the case anymore today. After all, China now has the world's second largest navy, sophisticated air force, and a new generation of highly trained special operations forces. But here's the the problem, Kobus. There's a fundamental contradiction between China projecting force abroad to potentially intervene in other countries uh, in order to rescue their citizens or protect their assets or their investments, because it comes right up against this non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries, this doctrine set up by Zhou Enlai, uh, you know, in the 1970s. So here to help us is the author of a new book on this subject, China's Strong Arm, Protecting Citizens and Assets Abroad, uh, written by two gentlemen, in fact, uh, Jonas parello Pressner and Mathieu Duchatel. Uh, Mathieu, unfortunately, couldn't join us today, but uh, Jonas is here. And just for, your, for some reference here, Jonas is a Danish diplomat and a scholar on North Asia. Uh, Jonas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm very excited about it. I, I'm a listener to the show, so it's uh, a great pleasure oh, to be wonderful. on and that, you, that you've both read the book as well. Well, let me just tell you right off the bat, you know, it, you know when you have a name, China's strong arm protecting citizens and assets abroad, it often has a, an academic tint to it. But this book really does not read like an academic book. Uh, so I highly recommend uh, that, that people pick it up because it's a fascinating read about Chinese foreign policy and, again, this new aspect of it. And let's just quickly kind of open our conversation today on a very broad note. I mean, the globalization of Chinese interests has paved the way in the past decade for this, what you call the gradual redefinition of China's non-interference principle. And that's, that's a quote from, your, from, from the introduction in your book. How do the Chinese square that circle? I mean, how do they you know, justify maintaining this very, very ironclad policy of protecting their their doctrine of not interfering in other countries' internal affairs, one by the way that they criticize the Americans for interfering and doing that very thing, when now they have a very similar footprint as to the United States when it comes to people and property. How are they reconciling these two? Well, it's difficult for them. I think the way they do it is rhetorically, they would, of course, the Chinese government will maintain that it still all works within the non-interference policy in that framework. And then there's a practice where it's much more flexible what they can sort of do within that. You could say, had you asked a group of China watchers in 207, will China field its navy uh, far abroad as part of the non-interference? People would have said, no, no, that's not sort of part of it. In 208, they just did just that with the Gulf of Aden mission, where they've been ever since with a Chinese Navy presence. Had you asked in 2010, will China be able to, with a mix of civilian and military means, to rescue more than 35,000 
workers out of Libya, you would have said, or out of a crisis zone, you would have said no. And precisely that happened in, in Libya in 2011. So, I mean, there's been these sort of gradual changes. For me, Sudan and the two Sudans are really sort of the, the laboratory uh, of it all, where China sort of combines from back, if we look back 10 years again, there was the whole criticism of China in Darfur supporting um, uh, the regime in Khartoum and, and doing only that, and, and, and that being seen as the sort of um, their classical sort of non-interference. By now, they're involved in, in, in several of the UN peacekeeping missions. They've even now fielded a uh, combat battalion to the one in, in South Sudan. They're actively in, uh, engaged in the, the negotiations between the warring parties in in in, uh, in South Sudan. And of course, some of it is to keep try to keep the oil flowing and their uh, nationals on the ground also protected in a very unstable environment. But you see a real evolution uh, there in the way they... Um, they uh, they do their policy. One of the interesting things, one of the interesting aspects about China and Sudan is the you know they are sensibly there as part of a of a, a wider UN peacekeeping mission, and then at the same time they have these pressures to to protect Chinese people living in Sudan and South Sudan, but also Chinese oil installations there, um, and presumably those two those two different kind of duties would basically pull them in two different directions. I mean, doing peacekeeping work means you might have to be in a different part of the country than having to protect these Chinese people and Chinese installations. Um, how is that balance struck by the by the Chinese troops in Sudan and South Sudan? That's a very interesting uh, question, Kobus, and, and we looked into it in, in, in the book. I mean, and also interesting for the UN side, because that, of course, poses a, pro, uh, a, a certain dilemma for them as well by... Um, so, I mean, last year when the UNMIS, what, which uh, the UN mission is, is, is called, was uh, the mandate was revised, it was added sort of the protection of, of um, oil installation and, and workers, which are predominantly uh, Chinese in a, in a lot of the areas. Um, the UN has since, the way I've understood it, made sure that the Chinese troops are not sort of precisely in the same area. So there would be that sort of dilemma of they would basically be used in a case of crisis, more to protect national interest than sort of really the UN, the broader UN mission. So most of them are now in Juba, so not not near sort of the 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 oil field, which South Sudan, which we sometimes forget, is a size country almost the size of of, of France. So it's they're they're pretty far uh, far away, but already under the uh, the previous mandate, there were sort of cases of where the Chinese UN. Um, Soldiers would be working closely with, for example, CNBC on the ground and give them their risk assessments and uh, and and advice. And and there is also uh, one case which I think we mentioned in the book where uh, Chinese under in 2013 when there was really big um, uh, turmoil in South Sudan where Chinese workers fled to to the UN uh, base and and got protection there, which of course is completely fair enough. So there is that mix of of sort of uh, for the Chinese of national interest and also being part of a multilateral um, multilateral mission. I actually originally in, in the book wanted to call it sort of blue helmeting national interest. Uh, my editor was, British editors, very strongly that that's not a word. But uh, now <laughs> I, I throw it in here. We'll accept it. Uh, let's let's kind of just for the purposes of kind of helping our, our audience understand kind of the scope of what China's been involved in in terms of 
protecting its people and the risks that some of its people have faced overseas. I'm just going to give a short list of some of the events that have occurred in the past, say, two or three years. Uh, people, I think a lot of people are familiar with the fact that Chinese warships are now patrolling off of the Gulf of Aden, uh, or off the coast of Somalia in the Gulf of Aden, to protect merchant ships against Somali pirates. That's something that's been going on for quite a number of years. In 2014, uh, I think 24 Chinese nationals were kidnapped in South Sudan. Uh, in 2011 was the, the very dramatic rescue of, I think, 37,000 Chinese oil workers uh, during the war, uh, at the height of the war. And that was a very impressive evacuation and really kind of brought uh, to the fore the Chinese ability and reach and capability to do that, their willingness. There were ev evacuations from Yemen in 2015. Uh, we covered on this show last year Chinese hostages taken by Boko Haram in northern Cameroon, and there's been some instances of targeting Chinese in uh, Nigeria as well by Boko Haram. Three Chinese nationals, of course, were killed by al-Qaeda in Mali uh, just uh, last fall. And then we're going to end this little list with the, it's not in Africa, but it's still very pertinent, which was the killing of the Chinese hostage by ISIS. And what's interesting about that one, and this is what I'd like to get your, your take on, is the domestic political pressure coming on the Chinese to protect their nationals overseas because of this feeling that we are now a great power. And it was after the killing of the hostage by ISIS, this eruption on social media of let's do something. Xi Jinping, you've got to get out there. You've got to go and save these people. Do not let this go unpunished. And this pressure that, that they had to do something for fear of looking impotent. And so I'm wondering how much of this is the evolution of a Chinese policy just because it's a great power now, and how much of it is coming from the people themselves that feel that there's an obligation to protect Chinese overseas as some part of the, the Chinese patriotic ethic? That's a really that's a really good question, and and we look at that in in, in a couple of the um, of the cases in the book as well. I think there's much more of a of a sort of public scrutiny and and pressure on this, particularly since there's so much you can't discuss in China, which is, is censored. You can then say these type of things that are more sort of national nationalistic. Even I mean, there's a, a public uh, debate about this, so that that's not sort of the things that the government uh, always sort of clamp down on. Um, although there was actually a bit of censorship on actually on the, the on, ISIS. On the ISIS uh, one, ISIS. I think it was like yeah. one or two days it was out yeah. there and then they shut it down right after that. Exactly. Um, so, so so that's beginning as well. And I mean, a, a case that you didn't mention that we looked at in, in the book is actually on the Mekong River where some Chinese sailors got killed back in, in, in 2011 as well. And part of that... Uh, quite brutally, and and that's part of that. I was actually that it popped up on Chinese social media, and and the pic pictures of the sort of handcuffed bodies floating in the river, and and that made a huge outcry, and 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 I think was really one of the things that did that Beijing uh, took the case to heart, and 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 moved on it, and pushed the, the neighboring countries that we have have to find the the culprits, and um, and uh, and got a very sort of active stance. So I think sort of public scrutiny matters um for, for the chinese leadership i mean it's it's of course as an authoritarian, authoritarian system that doesn't have elections it's it's one of the ways they can feel is there's something brewing in the population and so uh so in that sense there is a pressure to um to uh to do something in in some of these cases one of the one of the you know in listening to this list that uh, that, that Eric um, you know going to mention right now um it's struck me that there seems to be uh, you know, kind of a difficult situation developing for 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 
the Chinese authorities trying to keep Chinese people safe in the sense that, you know, I mean, moving ahead with a large scale operation like the, the, the massive evacuation of Chinese people from Libya, for example, or um, or the, the, the peacekeeping in South Sudan. I mean, there the machinery of the state is, is very useful. And, you know, kind of there's a set of protocols that you that you follow to 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 kick them into gear. And you have all of these troops arriving and, you know, kind of and they do their work. But in the case of Boko Haram, for example, you know, kind of oh, like small scale terrorism and kidnapping of Chinese people in all of these different, you know, on the border between, you know, kind of on the border of, of Cameroon, for example, or, you know, kind of in Nigeria, or all of these rural areas where there are very small, small uh, populations of Chinese people, but, you know, spread very widely. That seems like a completely different challenge. And trying to keep those people safe seems much harder to do, um, because you just don't have enough troops to, to patrol all of those areas. Um, how do you think the, the Chinese government is going to deal with that challenge in the future? Well, I, I think that is a challenge. And I think a lot of this Chinese policy has basically been crisis management so it, it's come by crisis it's not that there is a big plan in 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 beijing i mean there's a willingness to to sort of to on um, protecting nationals abroad to do more and it was added to sort of the official foreign policy nomenclature at the, the 18 party congress so in that sense there is an official stance but a lot of these has been crisis based i mean nobody in i think in the chinese ministry of foreign affairs dreamt of wanting to evacuate more than 35,000 people out of Libya in 2011. It was because Libya broke down and the Chinese had all their construction workers, actually many more than they even thought, which is one of the things we, we look at in the book as well, is is the discrepancy on numbers, is that the embassy thought they had around 6,000 people in the country and then they realized there were so many, uh, many more um, Chinese uh, workers. So some of these things actually pop up as problem. And the fact that Chinese companies have gone into a lot of the unstable and fragile states around the world now means that there is a, a risk map uh, that the government then sort of has to, to deal with. So it, it's not, again, something that they are I would say, sort of dreaming of having to handle, but it's it's just something that's sort of thrust on there with their global commercial empire on the Chinese uh, in the Chinese government's uh, lap, and that also then goes for. Um, so I think a, a lot of it is actually quite ad hoc. What what can they do in a different situation? But it does make them much more aware of starting to be uh, the government as well. What is our sort of risk map abroad and how do we handle some of these uh, situations? Let, let me just pick up a little bit on that because just to kind of pursue Kobus's point a little bit more in detail, you know, this this ability, there's two different levels here. The one is the ability to do this in a crisis situation like what we saw in Yemen and, and, and in uh, um, Libya. But the other part, you know, that I that I read on the Chinese blogs, like on Sina, there's some pages dedicated to Africa as well as on ChineseInAfrica.com, is just a steady stream of complaints from, and this is all done in Chinese, so it's meant for a Chinese audience, not for a foreign audience, and a steady stream of complaints at the embassies, they don't do anything to help their people. I mean, they are used, they're more than useless is what people say um, across Africa. And there's these discussion threads that are that are online. And so, you know, on one hand, this seems to be that in Beijing, at the military level, at a crisis situation, they're, they're kind of adapting their foreign policy. But when it comes to actually providing citizen services uh, on the ground to assist Chinese in, in country, it doesn't seem to be happening, at least as I'm picking up from Chinese uh, social media. 
So what's your, do you see that discrepancy as well between the two? No, I think that's very true. I mean, I think that's probably at the sort of, at the local, if you come up as, as one single Chinese uh, national and, and have a complaint and tell that to your embassy, I can imagine that you, and we, we saw quite a number of, of things we also picked up on Weibo during the research that indicated uh, the same thing. And basically, it's it's whenever it gets high enough that either it gets on the host government's attention um, or big on social media. I mean, I just sort of quirky case that's not even in Africa was just in in Europe actually where this um, that we saw a while back with this young girl who had lost her passport and then came to one of the Chinese embassies I think it was in Brussels and and uh, and told them they just turned her away and then she put it on Weibo and she was quite popular and she suddenly got more than hundred uh, several hundred thousand that were complaining about it and the, <laughs> the embassy got called up from Beijing and said get her back give her a passport and make sure this gets sorted so, I mean, that's a little bit, I mean, you can have that in the West as well, that if, you, if you're if you strong on social media and you complain against your airline or your yeah, I was about to say, if you do that with Delta Airlines, you'll get a, you'll get an answer. Yeah. And <laughs> if you have, if you have several hundred thousand followers that are willing to sort of, so I, I, I think there is that sort of, uh, um, and it's, so it's still not ingrained. I mean, you can you look at China, inside China, the idea of citizen service isn't sort of always tied on the agenda. And you have lots of Chinese workers that are inside China that don't, of course, have very good uh, labor conditions. So the fact of, 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 of suddenly completely providing for them abroad um, is not in every Chinese, uh, I think, uh, embassy employees uh, first of their mind. So it's, I think it's much more when you get to that sort of crisis level that you need to sort of do something where it's damaging to China's uh, image, um, and that's where you see the sort of reactions. I think an interesting uh, case I would just mentioned from um, Angola is when there was a, a lot of sort of complaints also about um, trouble inside the Chinese community. The, the Chinese Ministry of Public Security actually sent agents with the consent of the Angolan authorities to try to sort it out and brought back a whole sort of bunch of what they considered criminals for prosecution in uh, in in China, which interesting in several ways you had an element of extraterritorial justice but you also had that sort of want to sort of clean up to make sure okay we need the, the sort of the chinese community to function in uh in uh, in far away places otherwise it's, it's sort of blowback on 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 china's uh, image so you know the the troops the chinese troops that are participating in the un um, peacekeeping effort in in sudan and south sudan they are generally labeled as the first chinese combat troops to 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 take part in this kind of mission in africa um do, do you how much combat do you foresee not only from in in their case but like how much open open conflict you know violence and and actual fighting do you foresee chinese um troops and chinese security personnel kind of doing in the future in 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 places like africa um do, do you do you foresee a, a more kind of active role in the future than than they're doing now that's, I mean, that's hard to predict. But again, if we if we look back and see sort of the, the big steps they've taken within what they would still, the Chinese say, within the remit of the non-interference policy of the, the, the Navy presence in the Gulf of Aden, the, the evacuations now. Uh, I mean, it's probably more a big step for China, the fact that they now have troops that are they're able to sort of, they're not just uh, auxiliary troops or engineers, but are a real sort of infantry uh 
infantry troops. I mean, they're part of, if we look at South Sudan, they're part of the UN mission, which has its specific mandates to sort of monitor um, ceasefire, to, to protect civilians and so on. So it's not necessarily that they're foreseen to be engaged in any uh, combat. It actually, they have also now uh, uh, combat troops in, in Mali, although the, the numbers are smaller than um, than in South Sudan. So it's, it's, it's just as much an evolution in sort of Chinese um, uh, peacekeeping policy. And I think that's probably to, to get some a little bit more experience in the continent and and again, in the future, that that could of course lead to that they have troops that know about sort of how to uh, to um, to work in an African uh, terrain and, and and know a little bit more than if they had only had uh, support troop, which has been their sort of their, uh, their classical definition of what um, was consistent with the non-interfering policy. I mean, it it brings up this interesting issue because during the hostage crisis with ISIS, uh, the foreign ministry kind of leaked out that Xi Jinping was considering deploying special operations forces to to do a rescue. And I mean, I don't believe that they were actually doing that, but I think they had to placate the masses to say at least they were thinking about it. And it brought up the, the issue for me that, you know, the Chinese have never been confronted with this type of challenge before. This is not like the Americans, the Israelis, even the French, who have an enormous amount of experience with their special ops, Delta Force and things like that, doing hostage rescues, very, very volatile, high risk, far from home. The logistics that are required to do something like this are enormous. And the risk is that if one day we're in Mali and there's another Al-Qaeda type of hostage siege and the Chinese decide, you know what, this time we're going to send in our Delta Force. And if they fail miserably, a la Carter, Jimmy Carter in Iran in the, in the late 1970s, it could look very, very damaging for the Chinese. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious to think, do you ever foresee, um, let's say, move away from combat troops, but this, this kind of protecting of Chinese interests in a, a special operations context, will we see a Chinese Delta Force um, or, you know, SEAL Team 6, the equivalent, uh, you know, intervening abroad in very strategic operations? That's, of course, I mean, again, hard, hard to predict, but I would say... I mean, where's the, uh, the trend going that, based on your research? The, but the, no, but the trend would be going towards much more sort of uh, uh, intervention and of trying to sort of solve these situations. Um, and I think what's just as interesting your question is also... The, actually when something goes wrong because what so far the things have been going amazingly well i mean libya when you look into the machine room of that operation when they started out they were scrambling they were basically as we have in one of the the interviews in the book just calling up some of the other embassies um in beijing from brits uh, and others like how do you do this how do you sort of rescue that many people uh What's, what's sort of the game plan? And and you must say they managed by both using the state-owned companies and um, uh, military means combined actually to do this. So, so far... But let, and let me see. interrupt you very quickly just to remind yeah. everybody also that at the same time that the Chinese were making their evacuations from Libya, the Americans were fumbling. Uh, the Americans couldn't get their people out. They couldn't get the ships, the, you know, into the space. And it was really a moment where the Chinese actually outshined the Americans who supposedly have all the resources in the world and all the experience in the world to do this. So it was a really a twofer for the Chinese that not only did they get their people out, but they did it in a way that actually, you know, were, was better and more effective and efficient than the Americans. 
Yeah, and in another rising power, India, there was a lot of sort of complaints about the same thing that they were also really they had a sizable number of workers as well that they were very slow to uh, to get them out and um, um, and China actually even both in the Libya case took a little bit of of other foreign uh, workers out with them and in Yemen they actually made a big I would say publicity stunt out of doing this that they not only sort of evacuated more than or around 629 Chinese citizens but they also took 279 other foreign nationals where they actively contacted other countries and we can take some of yours and took a good number of Pakistanis took Germans took uh, so they sort of show that the fact that China is out there militarily has a benign um, it has a, is a benign thing for uh, for the world and um, uh, last year when I launched a book at uh, Mathieu and I at uh, the Shangri-La dialogue, the big sort of security dialogue every year in in Asia, the Chinese representative and head of the delegation at Soon, he was actually using that as an example to sort of counter the American narrative about how China is only aggressive in the South China Sea, saying, look at Yemen, we're out there, we're actually helping, you know, um, other uh, foreign nationals. And uh, so it's, it's a positive thing that China is more military active in the world. Um, you know, kind of so far we've been we've mostly been speaking about about the official Chinese army, um, and uh, you know, so government government controlled troops. Um, do you, how do you see the role of private security and security consultancies kind of develop in the, in the kind of China Africa space in the future? That is a really uh, that's really interesting. That was something we, we we looked into, and actually originally we had this sort of. Um, chapter with scenarios of things that could go sort of wrong in the future and uh, the publisher Routledge felt that they were way too speculative so they they got sort of censored out but uh, now I can, <laughs> can throw them in and one of them was actually called the Chinese Black Border um, and did look at the fact that since the Chinese companies that are state-owned to um, also the ones going abroad to a large degree you have that sort of odd link between their commercial entities, but they're also part of the um, um, of the Chinese um, sort of party uh, uh, system. So in a sense, they're um, so is it the state's responsibility or is it the company's responsibility? And particularly also if they then take, which some of them have started doing, private security, like other international companies. But if you then saw situation, which is why we call it sort of the Blackwater scenario where you'd have a, a, a private security company rented by a Chinese company, say, in Afghanistan to protect a, a copper mine, and they would suddenly kill locals. Would it fall back on the Chinese government? Because it's there is that much tighter link to the Chinese uh, system by, by the companies, or would it somehow they manage to deflect it over and say it's the company's own commercial responsibility? The case would decide, but I mean, I think that is really sort of interesting e- e- evolution um, to uh, to follow as 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 the Chinese companies themselves now establish their own uh, sort of risk management. Um, for example, in, in in South Sudan that we've talked about a couple of times, CNPC, which is is of course sort of the oil major, the Chinese oil major that's really heavily engaged there. They have now built up, which some of the interviews we did, their own sort of system. So they also have planes sort of standby to fly out their their workers. So of course they they've been relying also on. On, on government support, but they're also building their own sort of systems of um, of uh, making sure that they can uh, protect um, their uh, workers, which other international companies would do. But again, in a case where some of this failed, you would have a really sort of interesting how to predict where, 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 where would this then suddenly be 
seen in, in, in some country as the Chinese government's uh, government fold, and they would be involved in a way that they would never want to be. The book is China's Strong Arm, Protecting Citizens and Assets Abroad. It's a fascinating look at an evolution in Chinese foreign policy, really one of the key tenets, which is the adaptation of the non-interference doctrine in order to protect Chinese people and property and interests overseas. The book is available on Amazon, and it's clear based on the pricing, my good man, that you're not getting rich off of this. Uh, Kindle prices are at $7.99, and there's, for our students out there, there's a used ones at $2.98. So uh, there's no excuse not to get this book. It's, ex- it's an excellent read. I really encourage everybody to check it out, in part because it's done in really not a very stiff academic way. Sorry, Kobus. You're, you're people, you write no. in very, very stiff academically ways. But uh, and, uh, also, and also I can tell you that the the... The lower price is actually an indicator that I think some people are actually making money off it. The, the, those high price, oh, that's right. If it's like these of, of academic books, they're the ones that, that make that have no one buying them. So congratulations, you're exactly. getting rich off your book, Jonas. <laughs> uh, so Jonas Paroplesner is a Danish diplomat based in Washington, who's also a scholar on North Asia. He wrote the book with uh, Mathieu Duchatel from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Jonas, what we like to do at the end of every show is kind of connect our our, our listeners to our guests is there are you on social media as a diplomat i'm sure that's probably yes. a little bit more co- oh you are because a lot of diplomats actually, yeah. avoid social oh, yeah. media for fear of causing, I, I causing international a, outbreak a, a twitter handle at uh, jonas p plesner um where i which i basically use a lot for the book yeah, fantastic so and, and, discuss, and discuss what's happening in um in in china so um so on that i i try to sort of still track uh, China's risk map and what happens to to Chinese uh, nationals ab- abroad. Well, we will put a link to Jonas's uh, Twitter handle as well as an Amazon link to buy the book because, uh, again, I really, really recommend it. And also, we do want to give a hat tip to to your co-author, Mathieu, uh, and hopefully we can get him back on the show one of these days as well. Kobus, uh, if people want to stay on top of what you're doing these days, what's the best way to stay in touch with you? One of the easiest ways is on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we we have this constant drip feed of, of China Africa news stories that we that we curate um, 24 hours a day. I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And uh, just a little heads up for everybody who listens to our show via the mobile apps. We are in the process now of redesigning all of our mobile apps. We're actually going to be launching new apps for Amazon, Microsoft. Can you believe it? Amazon and Microsoft have mobile apps? Go figure. Uh, but also <laughs> Android, which is apparently just a terrible experience right now. Apologies to all of our Android users. But that will change in the next couple weeks. And of course, iOS. You can find all of those in the respective stores. If you want to listen to this podcast, much easier. Just type in iTunes.com slash China Africa podcast. That's the best way to subscribe from uh, from iTunes. And again, we'll be back very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>